I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Steve Thomas, who is the Chief Executive of the Welsh Local Government Association and a a key figure in Welsh civil society, one might say. And uh, Steve has been at the WLGA since the year 2000. For the last 15 years, he's been the Chief Executive and is about to step down at the end of the year. So, Steve, where are you from? I'm from Eberville. I'm from the South Wales Valleys. Coming up to my 58th birthday. Uh, As I say, uh, a a native of Gwent, uh, the old Gwent as it was, I went to, uh, like many people of my generation, I went to what was a secondary modern school, not a, not a grammar school. I failed my 11th class. I then, uh, like all natives of Eberville at that time, worked on the basis that I was going to walk straight into Eberville Steelworks with a job at the age of 16 and got the age of 16 and Eberville Steelworks closed down. So the upshot of that is I did the obvious alternative. I went underground for a couple of years. I worked underground, I then worked in factories, I did a variety of things. I was the world's worst painter and decorator for at least one week when I electrocuted myself. Uh, sanding a not roof. Not fatally. No, uh, no, not fatally, but yeah. I think it did affect me over the years, uh, sanding a roof. And then in the 80s I went into uh, what was uh, the Altering College at the time, did a diploma, and then went back into university as a mature student over time. And, then in the 1980s, ended up in local government for my sins. What was your speciality, actually, when you were in local government? When I was working in uh, Islam Borough Council, I was asked uh, by my then chief executive in 1991, who said, called me in the office and said, he said, I've got a little project for you. I said, oh, what's that? He said, um, uh, the Welsh office had just issued a consultation on uh, local government reorganisation. He said, I'd like you to be the project manager for it. Five years later, and... <laughs> Um, what was a period of you know major organisational change and churn? Uh, we created the Caffili Unitary Authority in 1996. Uh, so I worked for them until uh, 2000. I was the youngest chief officer in Wales at the time, the, running all the policy and central services departments in uh, Caffili, and then came to the WLJ in 2000. So how do you think local government has changed since you've been in it? Well, I mean, culturally, it's massively changed. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, just simple things. I mean, I first started in in meetings, that, you know, people were smoking cigarettes and mostly white men like myself, you know, and uh, the the equalities agendas clearly hit local government over the years. Not in the, you know, I'm not saying we're there, far from it. We're, we're way off still, but, you know, it, it has seen real improvement. I think as well, I think behaviour's improved, some of the elected members I've dealt with over the years, I think the euphemism is colourful. But the uh, the bottom line is I think there has been an improvement in behaviours. That said, local government would be deadly dull if it wasn't robust and full and frank debates at the local level, and that's what you'd expect. But I think what has also changed is a much keener focus on performance, uh, on ensuring a customer-based service as opposed to the old... You can have whatever you know, colour door you want as long as it's green approach, which did dominate local government for years. I think it's a much more customer-focused approach. But unfortunately as well, I think that has been slightly tempered in recent years by austerity, which has really reduced choices for councils. So it's unrecognisable from when I started. It is a better place now than it was. It has perhaps lost some of its colourful characters, but some of those colourful characters, uh, you know, probably needed to step down in the area that they did step down. 
but I think you know the, ch- the change has been for the better, and you know you have a range of organisations out there who are much better managed, and, you know, more democratically sound than they've been for a number of years. If you look at the history of local government, uh, obviously going way back to the nineteenth century, there was this sense, wasn't there, of it being an alternative form of government, and you mm-hmm. had these great leaders of yeah, local authorities definitely. like Joseph Chamberlain yeah, in Birmingham, yeah. and. In those days, I think, there were people who went into local government out of perhaps high principle. Obviously, you did have the people who went in in order to mm-hmm. somehow improve their own particular yeah, positions. Definitely. And there were business people who yeah. wanted to um, uh, pursue their, their business interest in a slightly different way and exercising yeah. authority and all that sort of stuff. But it was a sort of expansionist period. And it seems to me that now, for quite a long time, we've had quite the reverse mm. and I mean I know people who are councillors uh, a very good friend of mine is actually a, a, a councillor in Yorkshire yeah. and I know that she is a cabinet member now but she really doesn't like having to make cuts and yeah. it's not what she went into politics to do and yet lots of people in politics find themselves in that position of having to prioritise and, and not actually think about what more can we can we can we do but what can we do with less yeah, resources? And we expected to do more with less. Is, is that a, a, that's a common predicament, I, I guess? I think that's a common predicament. I, th- I think your point about, you know, there was a golden age of local government and this isn't it is absolutely right. Uh, I think it's been an incredibly tough period. And you're absolutely right. People don't get elected to make these horrible choices. You know, what has happened since 2008 is the politics of austerity, particularly in Wales, has selectively applied uh, the cuts process to the local state. And the same in England. I mean, you can argue it's been worse in England than in Wales, but, you know, worse in the sense that in England they've had their legs chopped off and in Wales we've had our knees chopped off. The, the scale of cats has been ginormous. And the result of that is it's an incredibly difficult place for local leaders to, uh, to take on and to inhabit at the current time. And I think, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I think some of the bravest politicians in the UK at the current time are local politicians. I look at people like Nick Forbes, the leader of Newcastle. I look at people like Lord Porter, the Conservative politician who runs the LJ. I come to Wales, Debbie Wilcox uh, in Newport, Hugh Thomas in Cardiff, Andrew Morgan uh, in RCT, uh, Eleanor Gwynne and Emlyn Dole in West Wales. And you look at these politicians and they are taking incredibly difficult decisions at a time when, you know, the public's not going to thank them for it. The, the public's going to be bitterly opposed to this. But the way that the, the government has run the austerity programme has shifted that programme to the local state. And we, I think John MacDonald came out with a quote recently that, you know, described councils as a hu- the human shield for cats. And I think he's right on that. I think that has happened. And I think that's been very disturbing. And I think what's been even more disturbing about it is that the public realm infrastructure, it's stuff that we value. I mean, my dad had prostate cancer for 15 years, lived in Eberville, had prostate cancer for 15 years, and struggled in the later period to get it because of the lack of public toilets. You know, And you think, you know, it's not important, is it? It's bloody important, you know, it's vitally important, these sort of core services which are disappearing across Wales. And that common infrastructure of services which people treasure, I think has been a great tragedy of uh, austerity and I think that's one of the things uh, I, I'm not elected <laughs> claim to be elected would I stand to be a local politician damn difficult place damn hot seat to occupy in these, in these climes 
And I look at what you know your average local politician does, your average council leader does, and I compare it to say, your average MP and your average AM. I think they do a much more difficult job. I suppose also there is this issue, isn't there, in Wales, where the Welsh government has, over the last few years, during the course of austerity, had to make big decisions about uh, the priority of spending, and yeah, that definitely. largely comes down to between local government and health. Mm. And, of course, there was a period when, for a couple of years, they were... 2010 to 2012. Where they were yeah. cutting back on the, yeah. on the health, and they got absolutely hammered, didn't yeah, they, by definitely. the UK media, and you had definitely. all this stuff from the Daily Mail saying these people are the, the death of the health service yeah. and all that sort of stuff. And so, as a consequence of that, I imagine it was a reaction to that, that they changed their policy mm. and they started increasing funding of health service. But the other side of the coin was from their point of view, the need to reduce local government. And I think everybody in local government recognised that. I think everybody in local government uh, you know, would, would say they understand that. They see the, you know, the absolute core value of the health service in Wales, particularly with a, what is a post-industrial population up there in one sense in terms of the closure of the steelworks and the mines and the traditional industries. But we've been at this now for eight years. This week, the Welsh Government announced a 7% uplift for the health service and further cuts for local government. They had a sum of money come down the M4, which equated to £1.4 billion. They've been telling us that their priority is to stop people going into hospitals, to you know, put money in preventative services, like social care, like housing, like the youth services, like community centres. They had a real opportunity this week to put money in preventative services, but all these fine strategies groundbreaking Future Generations Act, and they've ignored their own priorities. They've ignored their own priorities. Why do you think they've done that? I think the, uh, the health service is such an emotive issue. It's the 70th birthday of the health service that you know, the politics of the health service tends to crowd out the politics uh, of other areas. But I think it's a bad decision, and my politicians who you know, I work for in the WLJ are saying across parties it's a bad decision. And, you know, they want to see that emphasis on those services that stop people going into hospital. And why do they want to see that? They look at the absolute calamity across the border in England. And the health service in England has gone into huge crisis because of the crisis of social care. And when Simon Stevens, the head of the NHS in England, says you should be putting more money into social care, any money that comes along should go into social care, we should be listening to stuff like that. In Wales, I think, we're in a position where... It's been an unimaginative traditional debate, which is basically what we've got to do is pull more money into hospital, hospitals and we'll deal with treatment, but we won't deal with prevention. Prevention is the way forward, I'm afraid, and I think an opportunity was lost. But I also remember um, way back at the start of the Assembly, mm. there was this debate about so-called bed blocking mm. um, or delayed transfers of care, as yep. they refer to it, and that was because of the lack of capacity yep. in social care in the community. And so they were talking at that time about merging budgets. Yeah. I mean, they haven't still they still haven't done it properly, have they? Yeah, there's a huge debate about integration of health and social care across Wales, and there's some great practice out there, but there's not an integrated service out there. The problem with social care is social care is a very different ser- service from the health service. The health service free at the point of, of entry, social care, you're essentially paying for large parts of that service. The result of that is that social care itself, I think, is a massively important function, but it's not, in, in the great scheme of things, a loved institution like the National Health Service. And I think as a result of that, it's partly treated as a Cinderella service, and which I think is an absolute tragedy. 
think how many green papers we're supposed to have on the future of social care in England. Think of the dementia tax. Think of all these things that are supposed to be about you know the future of social care. Westminster governments have kept kicking this can down the road for years. Now, Welsh government has tried to grapple with the issue, but again in Wales, I think if the health and social care system was a train, health would be in the first class compartment, social care would be back in third. And I think they do not treat social care on a basis of equity or equality in Wales with the health service. And I think that is one of the great problems in Wales. And I think unless we recognise that a lot of the answers to our problems are in social care, we're going to see some of those issues that are emerging in England at the current time. But austerity uh, is the enemy of any kind of progression in this area, isn't it? Well, it's over, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the issue with austerity is that you know, local authorities have taken what is a period of eight years and they've stripped away lots and lots of services. The problem is now that we're starting to get into those core services like education and social services. It's our view as an association, it's, my, it's the view of my politicians, that they want austerity over yesterday. You cannot do this anymore. We are at the nth degree of, our, you know, of the level of cuts that we can make. There is a finite level of cuts that can be made. There are some services out there. There's, a, there's an organisation out there called Wales 2025 that shows that local authorities across Wales have cut economic development, for example, by over 60%. At a time when we re- we're starting to talk about city deals, city regions, all these things, and jobs, you know, the local economies, it is not the time to be cutting functions like that. We're cutting leisure and libraries by over 30 and 40%. We're cutting a range of youth services by those amounts of money. Those non-statutory services in particular, I mean, you know, I'll use the old Evervale word, they've had a paste in. They've had a paste in. And, you know, again, I go back to that point about the public realm, Unless we start to think about what that means, that's going to be a problem for us. Because if we want public services in Wales just to be a pile of hospitals, carry on doing what we're doing. Carry on doing what we're doing. If the Welsh Government budget nudges that health budget up to 60% of the Welsh Government budget, that will see a raft of local services which people treasure disappear. And you know as well as I do, the man and woman on the Evervale omnibus, they care very deeply about that 100 yards from the front door of their house. They care about that pothole that their car drives into every day, that flickering street lamp, that dog that doesn't seem to want to go in the park. They care about all these issues. And what, what is happening is those services are, to use that word again, getting pasted. There are, of course, those who would argue from a political perspective that this is all uh, part of an ideological plan because there are people on the right who have an ideology that they want to have a smaller state. Mm, yeah. um, I recently read a, a book, actually, about dark money, it's called, mm. um, in relation to how you've had American billionaires yeah. who have actually quite specifically gone out of their way to try to diminish the, the power of the state, and they've done that in various nefarious ways. Mm. And You've got people with an agenda who want to cut back on public services, who also, of course, want to have a piece of the action in terms of getting uh, services put out for privatisation mm. so that they can make money out of it. Mm. And that's one of the concerns, isn't it, about the Brexit situation, because yeah. you could have a situation afterwards where we're no longer tied into um, the EU uh, regulatory yeah. uh, sphere. And you could have people from overseas, particularly the United States, wanting to come in yeah, and definitely. basically take 
charge of our public services. Is, is that something that concerns you? Oh, definitely. I mean, ever since 2008, when that financial crash happened, there was a lovely sleight of hand pull, wasn't it? A trillion pounds was put into the banks to bail out the banks, and the blame was also shifted, and the blame was shifted to public services. The result of that is that we've seen a diminution in public services, and we're down, now down at a level where public services across the UK account for 36% of GDP. Only two other countries in the world have public service provision at that level, and that's the United States and Australia. If we look at all the great uh, sort of European countries, Germany, Denmark, Sweden, where there is a core infrastructure in place, where they have ridden you know, the waves of austerity much better, they spend more on their public services. And I think, you know, there's a, there's, there's, there's a fallacy, I think, in the UK which has emerged that when public, the public sector was to blame for the crash, God knows how that narrative ever emerged, and two, uh, the public sector had to put it right. That, I think, is poor thinking. And I think we're at the stage now when we're at that 36% of GDP where we've got to recognise as well that, you know, the public want a range of public services and yet you can't provide it within that, that window of funding. You can't have Swedish-style public services on American-style levels of public expenditure. The two are not compatible. They're not compatible. And I think, you know, there's got to be a start, be a real debate over the next period. And it'll be interesting to see what the Chancellor does when he stands up at the end of this month when he finds this £20 billion from to fund the health service across England and Wales. This money that's coming into Wales, £1.4 Because that's surely going to have to come from taxation surely going to have to come from national insurance. And if we're going to sort out the problems of social care, my parents, your parents, us as you know, growing elderly people, we're going to have to pay more for it. And anybody who thinks that you can do it on a 36% of GDP, I'm sorry, it's not going to work. What has the WLGA's relationship been like with the Welsh Government? Because I think a few years ago you had to have big cuts yourself, didn't you? It's been in a relationship which I would describe as uh, full and frank. I think that's a euphemism usually, isn't it? But it has. The WLJ takes a view that we will work in partnership with Welsh Government as keenly as we possibly can when we see it in the interests of Wales to do so. And that's, in 85 to 90% of the cases, that's, that's brilliant. And I don't think the Welsh Government themselves recognise this. When we do work in partnership, some of the best things achieved in uh, devolution have been done in our partnership. Look at the recycling rates. We're one of the best in the world. It's local government and Welsh government working together. Look at 21st century schools. It's a joint programme between ourselves and Welsh government. Superb facilities out there now for kids in terms of some of the brand new schools that's been put out there. Some of the stuff we've done on homelessness. And I I, I qualify this because I think the scourge of homelessness is is awful out there, but I think we've done some good things in Wales on that. So when we work together, it it works really well. When we don't work together... And WLJ is not shy about saying when we disagree with the Welsh Government. We've said it again this week. When we don't work together, I think, you know, central-local relations deteriorate. And I think there are periods when, you know, relationships have not been good. And it's a little point pretending otherwise. That grant was cut. I mean, you know, I'd love to say that was done on the basis of a rational decision. It was cut because we didn't agree with local government reorganisation. And I think we're in a position where... Uh, from the WLG's uh, viewpoint, you know, we've always felt that there's been a structural fallacy in terms of the arguments that Welsh Government have put up on local government reorganisation. How long has this dragged on as well? You know, we've been discussing this for over a decade. It's gone round and round. 
we are now, I think, about to enter the Guinness Book of Records for having a debate on local government reorganisation. You know, I think we beat in Northern Ireland. They took 11 years. I think we're starting to overtake that debate now. There are still those people who say that the problem with Welsh local government is that there hasn't been reorganisation. Yeah, well, in, I was involved at the outset, and, you know, people always blame John Redwood. They always, I mean, my remembrance was the person who actually kicked the debate off was David Hunt, not John Redwood. And my remembrance equally was that, yeah, there was, you know, there was, it was pushed by the, the Conservative Secretary of States. But the 22 was achieved partly because of Labour NT, MPs intervening. Murtha is there, you know, Ted Rowlands, Blaine Gwent, Lowe Smith, you know, they intervened and they wanted local authorities in their own areas to look after their own areas. And I understand that, I get that. Was 22 the right number? Who knows? But we got it. And, you know, my issue has always been in Wales is to make what we've got work rather than to say that structures are the answers to our problems. That said, we've gone over a period of 10 years where we've had various white papers, various local government ministers, various green papers. It's all been based on what is a, I think, sometimes a civil service view that big is beautiful and as long as you've got sufficient scale, you can sort out your problems. If that's the case, why isn't Betsy Cadwall, the local health board, the best organisation in Wales? If that's the case, why is Birmingham, the largest public sector organisation in Europe, on the verge of financial meltdown? Why has Northampton, with a population of 730,000 people, gone bankrupt? If scale is indeed the answer to all our problems, those organisations should be the best organisations in Britain. But in fact, there's no correlation between Absolutely. quality of service and size of the authority. And as I say, I think there's a structural fallacy about a lot of these arguments, which is basically, you know, if you create larger organisations, somehow that, that, you know, answers the resilience problems. There are issues around small scale, but there are issues around large scale. I don't know if there is an optimum size of uh, organisation out there, but what I do know is that some of the best local authorities out there are some of the more medium-range authorities. They're not the largest or the smallest. Some of the best ones, at least in the performance indicators league table, that you've <laughs> happily published every single year, uh, you know, it's been some of the smaller organisations that, that come out best. Take care of digging. I mean, even at the time when there was huge pressure in terms of education inspections, Kerry again as a small authority came up with an excellent education service, one of the smallest authorities in Wales. So, do you think uh, Alan Davis, as the minister says, you've just piped down? I, I don't. Alan's from my part of the woods, and he's very passionate about things. And like like ourselves, he has very passionate views that he wants to articulate. I think Alan has done the right thing. I think he put up a green paper where he basically again kicked the structure ball onto the pitch. And, you know, from our point of view, we didn't want that debate this time. I think what we're saying is that we've got this huge challenge to deal with austerity. You know, the bottom line is trying to merge authorities to create brand new authorities for two, three, two, three, four years' time. That would take our eye off the ball in terms of dealing with the big service challenges we've got up there. And, you know, let's be honest, what people care about out there is not the number of local authorities they care about there. Their levels of council tax, they care about the standard of their kids' education, they care about the cleanliness of their neighbourhoods. In one sense, they don't care if it's delivered by one authority, 22 authorities, or whoever else, as long as they get the services. And that's where our focus is, is on those services. I have heard people say that uh, the local government sector could be accused of crying wolf because if you were to look at press releases that have been put out mm. by WLGA yeah. uh, over the last decade or whatever... Um, you would find every year 
that uh, leaders are saying local government is going to go down the toilet mm. uh, as a consequence of this. But, I mean, do you think there's been a bit of hyperbole in the past, but we've now got to the situation where we really are looking at going down the toilet? I, I don't know if there has, because as I say, some of these services, I mean, they just... Some of these services are so thin and fragile now, they barely exist. They barely exist. They're not high-profile stuff. You, you don't get huge sort of media coverage of the youth service, for example, out there. But it's absolutely at the core of what communities need and what support communities need. And it's been utterly decimated. There's been a range of services decimated. The other thing I'd say about local government is, yeah, I mean, sometimes we go over the top, but then other times as well. The great thing about local government, you throw problems at it, and it tends to solve the problems. It does tend to solve the problems. It's been very good at that. It's interesting, isn't it? You said about the health service couldn't cope with two years of cuts. We've coped with eight years of cuts. We don't run deficits. We're in a position where we collect the council tax, we do what we're supposed to do. From our point of view, we've innovated. You've seen a huge range of new service models out there. You've seen authorities take their leisure and libraries and put them into trusts, deliver things in a different way. We've avoided that sort of horrific privatisation programmes that many of the English authorities have gone, gone through and which are coming back and biting them really badly. Look at Tameside at the moment in terms of the Carillion exposure that they've got. You know, really in deep trouble because of that. I think, you know, there's been... Absolutely. And, you know, Carillion, the collapse of that big company, running lots of services there. So we've not done that. And at the same time as well, we've tried with things like the council tax reduction scheme and a range of others to try and offset the impact on uh, the public of Wales. And we've done that, yet we've raised the council tax and we will continue to raise the council tax. I say this to you know to people out there. I totally understand why people get fed up and pissed off with the levels of council tax. But if we're to keep some of these services going, there is no other source of funding at the moment other than that. And if people want these services, if they want the bowling greens, if they want the sports centres, if they want the swimming pools, we've got to find sources of funding from somewhere. And the, the council tax is one of those sources. People get very wound up about governance issues sometimes, mm. don't yeah, they? Definitely. I mean, the um, authority that you used to work for before you went to WLGA, yeah. Philly, has been uh, perhaps the prime example over Definitely. the last few years of a situation where you had uh, uh, massive pay rises being yeah. put through for a number of very yeah. small number of people at the top while the, the yeah. mass of the workers were facing years of, uh, of pay freezes. And yet now the situation still hasn't been resolved because there is this agreement in place that you have to have if you want to get rid of a chief executive, you have yeah. to have a, an investigator come in. And this is just, t- it is literally taking years and years and years. I mean, do, do you think this sort of thing should be should be dealt with? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's got to be, the system's got to be reformed. I mean, I, I, sadly, one of, the, one of the features of my job is that I have taken part in some chief executive departures across Wales. And the process, if it's not a consensual process, is one which leads itself to time, you know, to really costly and elongated outcomes. And I think, you know, Caffilly is an example of that. I will also say in the Caffilly case as well, I totally disagreed with what happened up there in terms of the pay rises, particularly at a time of salary restraint. I, I just did not understand why the then senior officer corps went for that. But I also would say I did not understand the moment the police walked into that, into Caffilly, because all they did was put a size 12 boot into a problem which was solvable. And I think, you know, we've got to look at the role that they've played uh, over that period because the thing that happened in Caffilly, I think, was stupid. 
but the, the whole point of trying to take it through a public malfeasance process was just completely over the top. And I think the result of that is that, that you know, this terrible situation that Caffili currently finds itself in is a legacy of some of those decisions. And yet, the fact that you've got to have the, what's known as the dip process on the back of this is something which exacerbates that. You know, this, if there's a local government bill next year, all this has got to be looked at. You said earlier on that uh, you had admiration for a lot of the local government leaders who mm. were today having to deal with very difficult um, issues arising out of austerity. But I actually hear as well a lot of people complaining about the calibre of local councillors mm. and actually talking about how you have a situation where there is um, a, a local authority leader or a cabinet who are effectively controlled by the chief executive. Mm. I'm thinking, I'm not going to mention the name of this authority, but um, people have said this about a particular local authority in Wales as an example mm. where there have been successive parties in control of that authority mm. and yet it still seems to be controlled by an individual who is not an elected person. Is that a problem? There's, there's always a balance in that relationship between councillors and officers, and you've got to get that balance right. You know, the sign of a good authority when you've got a partnership between leaders and chief executive, you've got to seek that partnership. In terms of the calibre of councillors, yeah, you know, there are some, there's some brilliant councillors out there, there's some good councillors out there, and there's some mediocre councillors out there. There's some brilliant AMs across there, there's some good AMs across there, across there, and there's some mediocre ones as well. This is the way politics works. It's something you're going to have to sort of accept as part of the democratic process. I think, you know, in terms of what we want to encourage as a WLJ, however, when it comes to councillors, is a more diverse and a more reflective approach to Welsh society. We want to see much more, uh, many more women in. We want to see a greater representation uh, from uh, the ethnic communities across Wales. We want to see more parity between, you know, it's fabulous having Debbie Wilcox as the first ever woman leader of the WLJ after 15 years in this job. You know, she's been an absolute breath of fresh air. I'd love to see more women leaders out there. Steve Thomas, thank you very much. Thank you, Martin. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Mm-hmm.